welcome to the Females in Motorsport podcast. This is your host Manvi and today I'm very happy to have with me here a highly requested guest, Molly Oxnell. Molly is a resident tech talker, which I love that you have in your TikTok bio, the co-host of the Tech Heads F1 podcast, as well as the Engines, EVs and Espressos podcast. In short, if you have a tech F1 question, she's the one you need to ask. Welcome to the show, Molly. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for I for having me. And I'm still like, wait, you got requests? <laughs> yes, we got multiple requests, not oh just one. So we are very, very happy to have you here. And thank you so much for making the time on this Friday morning to chat with me. Anytime. So I mentioned that you're a resident tech talker, which I actually love. That's on your tech Twitter bio, and that's where I picked it up from. But... Just coming back to women in tech in general, and there are many women who work in motorsport around the technical side, around the engineering side, um, product development side, such as yourself. Women are very, very rarely still pulled into conversation about these larger things on their expertise in that area. What do you think that needs to be done to change that? And why is that even the case in the first place? I'll start with why I think that's the case because I think that'll stem into probably why they're not being pulled in because I think that there's a kind of a – it's symptomatic of this. Um, I've talked about it in a previous video, but not only are there were there not a lot of women or and still not a lot of women getting into motorsports, we're seeing an increase now, but there is what I consider to be a missing rung, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the missing rung effect from um, the McKinsey & Company study – but it seems like there's a lot being done for like the next generation of tech and engineering and motorsports women and all of the STEM. But there's not a lot being done for like career age women or women that are already kind of out there in their degrees or out there in the world. And so I think because there is this focus over there, we're forgetting about a large subset of women that either want to be in the space or are in the space and trying to climb within those spaces. And so you're still stuck as a woman, just like at McKinsey's study found that there are not these opportunities for you to climb. There's, you get stuck, you get to a point and then you're like, okay, I'm stuck now. And I think we're seeing some teams and some areas of motorsport be better about that than others. But I, I find that we're maybe not seeing a lot of women in these spaces because there's no path identified for them. There's a path identified for someone who's maybe 10 years younger, 15 years younger, but there's not somebody, there's not a path identified for them to help them either move up into roles or um, get them visible to leadership within organizations to be pulled into conversations. Yeah. I like the fact that you brought up that that feeling of feeling stuck. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very universal feeling generally with women, I feel. At least for me, I don't even I don't work in an area where um there aren't a lot of women. In fact, like the place I work, it's mostly women, I would say. Even so, I think when you step out of your house or you step out of your own bubble, you kind of still feel like um you're still in the minority. You kind of don't see other people who look like you. You don't see anyone you can go to advice. You don't see like a path, like you said, that you can feel like, okay, this is the path they they took and it might be a fit for myself as well. And I think in tech and engineering and STEM careers in general, it's probably so much more heightened because of the systemic issues that lay beneath that. 
Yeah, I agree. That's It's one of those things where it's also still very, well, you need to have this experience to come work over here, but to, to work over here, you have to have experience that you can only get from over here in certain spaces too, which just adds to that. And it's the barriers are being broken down, not through the organization, they're further down the line than, than some people are and, and in the world. And it, it still just leads to this feeling of like, well, now what? I'm stuck. And I'm not being heard. Like, I, I think I'm being heard, but am I really being heard, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also about whom we're talking to or not talking to rather, but who is the one who should be listening. And mm-hmm. the fact is that those people are men. They're yeah. mostly not women. And they're, un- unless that changes, truly believe until like senior leadership changes at all yeah. these organizations, it's going to be so much harder to actually bring through any diversity of thought or bring through any women and people of color into those areas as well. Because unless the top changes, like everything is top down, especially yeah. in big organizations like this, big sports like this. And it's just coming incredibly difficult yes. to be able to progress without that. Yeah. And even then, I feel like a lot of these big organizations, they operate almost in like a vacuum. And so they maybe Mm -hmm. also don't get the perspective from outside of their organization or from someone who's not in their world or who doesn't look like them or who isn't them. And that leads to them just continuing to make the decisions like they've always made them and not consider Mm -hmm. kind of a bigger picture or consider another opinion that isn't how they've kind of always done things too is also kind of part of what goes into that I feel like yeah that's a really great point I know I said what can be done to change this and obviously this is not a question that we can really like answer but if you were to answer what would you say like what possibly could be done to help mitigate these things so I think that we're doing a good job on like a grassroots level I think we could improve by listening to women that are not only already in our organizations and in our places but um reach I this is where I get stuck because it's like a whole it's a whole circle Mm -hmm. um I think not only reaching out to the women that are there but I think just looking at taking yourself like stepping back as a leader And that's one thing that I always try to do too. As leaders, like take a step back and think about it, not how I would do it, but how someone else might or what's the bigger picture of this or how does this affect not just what's in my direct control? How would someone else that isn't me make this decision? And I I get asked sometimes, if I was this person in the leadership chain, how would I make the decision? Mm -hmm. And that's one of my favorite questions to get asked because it totally changed my perspective on how... I approach problems or how I I discuss things with people and also understanding it from their pain point or from their perspective has been helpful too. Cause it's like, well, what, well, how can I help or what, what's paining you or how would this affect you? And I think that that's something that a lot of leaders could do. And it's Mm. called like design thinking and empathy interviewing too. I think if they start to think in that way, I think it would help also find some solutions through the chain and through their organizations to help improve getting women into leadership positions, listening to women, helping improve diversity through the orgs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like that. I think thinking like, just being in that position and being like, how would I, what would my decision be if I were a different person? Mm -hmm. Or not a different person, but you know what I mean? I think that could really help 
bring new perspectives in. But it's interesting because I also am someone who believes that with leadership, of course, you need experience to be yes. in like a high leadership position. But at the same time, I feel like you also need to have young voices in the space mm-hmm. because they're so much more in touch with everything that's happening yes. on the ground level. And I think when you're in one position for very long, as more senior leaders are, you kind of lose touch with what's actually happening and what people are actually talking about and what they actually need. And I think F1 is actually a great example of that because now that we have all these new female fans coming into the sport, the sport just doesn't know what to do with us. They just don't know how to welcome them. They don't know what we want. They don't know how to keep us safe. And I think that can only change with more women in the room who can tell them what we can do. Because, I mean, if you're speaking from a safety perspective, I don't think men can really ever understand the safety concerns that women feel. Correct. It's like those videos you see where they have a man, like watch a woman walk down the street and get catcalled, or they have like those like candid cameras where the guys are watching something like that happen to a woman. And they're like, I had no idea it's like, mm. well, yeah, you're a guy. You you wouldn't, you know. You wouldn't know. No. Exactly. I was at the Miami Grand Prix. It was my first Grand Prix. Oh ever. my gosh! Yes. How was that? Was it fun? Do you have a great time? It was so so fun. I will say, like, I will. I said this to anyone who wants to listen to this. I will say I was very pleasantly surprised by the organization at the Miami Grand Prix. So it was my first one, and it was a very um, last minute decision. I literally. And, um, you know, you always see these TikToks happening that say, like, you know, the experience was terrible, the lines were long, Mm -hmm. I had to wait hours to get a bottle of water. And because it was so last minute, I didn't have time to prepare. So I was just expecting the worst the entire time. Everything was super, super well organized. So I will give it to the Miami Grand Prix team, where credit where it's due. But coming back to... (laughs) Yes, yes. Not so Miami. But coming back to what we were talking about, I I did see a couple of cases of harassment happening right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Like a couple of men were just catcalling this woman who was basically working. She was working at the Grand Prix. And they were just like catcalling her, speaking in a language I didn't really understand, to be fair. But you know they're catcalling her. Yeah. And she was getting very visibly uncomfortable because she knew what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Even with Miami, like the organization was super, it was stellar. Um, and there was like decent amount of security, I would say. But I just, I think people who are organizing it or people who, you know, work at the top level, they just don't know what women need and what they need to be safe mm-hmm. and feel safe. Because for that woman, if she wasn't working, let's say she was a fan, that might put her off to coming to a race ever again. Ever again, yeah. Which is horrible. And Right. And that's just like, you know, anyway, it's so hard to get to a race anymore. It's so expensive. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you know, all of this, I I feel like people are going to start turning down and they're just going to be like, okay, we don't want to go because, you know, it's not safe. It's expensive. There'll be this drop off where it's like, well, what's happening at a leadership level? And be like, I wonder why, you know, where it's like, had they had they listened or had they had um, a woman voice in the room, they, they might not be in that situation. And that's, we're there. I see it too, especially when they make things like statements and they say, well, we're going to make these improvements for races for safety or different things to help inclusion in our fans. We're like, everybody's like, that's not what we're asking for. Like we like, can you talk to somebody at like a grassroots level or talk to a woman, please? Because that's not really an action that, that helps the situation. And I think we're seeing that 
in a lot of things that they do. 100%. So, of course, we've talked about how the lack of representation affects women and affects fans directly. How do you think it impacts the development of the sport itself? So I'll tie it into where I say that it's like a almost like a vacuum of decision making. And if you have all of the same perspectives in the room and all of the same kind of yes people or all of the people that think the same way, you're going to wind up down a certain path and stuck in your ways. Whereas if you have those different perspectives, those different voices, different backgrounds, um, you have a diverse decision making group it'll open up more development. I'd say it would, I think it fosters more ideas too, because not everybody's going to think the same way. So you may be in a room of all guys who think the same way and they're all just, yeah, that works and, and run off and do it. And whereas if you have some people who think differently, different backgrounds, they have different experiences, um, they may be able to like, no, well, why don't we think about it this way? And it could actually be a better way, but because this te- there's almost like a vacuum of these decision makers. They all kind of, in my opinion, think the same way. Um, it leads development in one way, and I don't think it it leaves it as open. And obviously, these are the best, the brightest, the like top cream of the crop tech thinkers and, and developers in the world, aerodynamicists and all of that. But I still think if you have just this one non like one just type of thinker, it doesn't always lead to the best development path, if that makes sense. It's very like stuck in your ways. And yeah, your ways could work, but I bet you there's a way that's even better. And the person who has that idea is not in the room. Yeah, I like that. I also think that I so true. Like everybody's had different experiences. Women and men have very different experiences growing up. And without that, you're right. There is just one streamlined way of thinking. It's almost like you have blinders on in the decision room and you need to have more people to give uh to have a more open dialogue to have more ideas just flowing in more creativity flowing in and you're right i think that can lead to so many more new ways and maybe better ways of doing things mm-hmm. yeah because this is your the motorsport industry is an industry that fosters so much innovation it's one of the fastest development labs for automotive technology in the world and rolling it back to like consumer cars and if you don't have this I don't want to say it's not like too many cooks in the kitchen, but if you don't have kind of a organization that has kind of a diverse thinking group, I think it leads to that very stuck in your ways. And then when somebody does come in and challenge it, they're like, well, this is how we've always done it. And you're sitting here asking, well, why? And nobody wants to tell you why. And just it's always how it's been done. It just leads to all of those kind of stuck feelings, organizational barriers you don't feel listened to that tie back into what we were talking about previously too, where it's just like, well, it's, we've always, always said, well, why do we do that? I don't know. Okay, well, let's do something that like, with a why. Well, let's do it because of this. And it would make sense. It actually would get me a tenth of a lap time or something. Like it would have an improvement and people will still be like, well, we've always done it this way and move on and not challenge that. It is. It's the, I think the key word is not challenge that because you're right. If the same people, same thinkers, no one is going to challenge any of the things that are already happening and we won't have any new ways of doing things. Um, now, since I have you here, I'm going to ask you a lot of tech things because okay. I am totally dense about technology oh, generally. <laughs> so my parents used to joke that I'm the chief technology officer of my family oh my because gosh. I could do small things like start up a phone yeah. and that made me think like, oh, I'm so technologically inclined. And then when I started watching F1, I was like, I don't understand what is going on in this sport. 
at all. So because I have you here, I'm going to be asking you all like my tech questions. I will do my best to answer them. F1 and generally motorsport is like the highest level of technology on the ground. And I know that sometimes drivers to describe how technologically advanced the cars are and the innovation that goes in, they always compare it to fighter jet, which always intrigues me. I'm like, oh, I never really thought about that. Do you think that is like the closest thing to these cars on the ground, like for F1 and IndyCar? I don't think so. I think you can use it as like a valid comparison. Like I talk about fighter jets and IndyCars when I explain the halo because the glass around the halo is actually like the same impact proof glass on a fighter jet that surrounds the IndyCar windscreen. Um, I'll talk about fighter jets with like, oh, it looks like a fighter jet with its aerodynamics, but I actually, I appreciate it because it's, they're like the top guns of motorsport in, I would say definitely F1 and IndyCar, but I think that using road cars, like everybody has a road car and I think that they would understand what they're talking about a lot more if it was like, I I don't know how many people have been in a fighter jet so they can relate to that description. I think pretty much everybody's been in or around a road car um, or like I always try to use things that like I know everybody's experience so like I was talking about drag and turbulent air once and I was like you know how you put your hand out the window in like a moving car and you feel it want to get pulled back or it gets pulled around that was like a demonstration of drag and turbulence and everybody's experienced that like when the air wants to like move my hand around that's the turbulent air acting around my hand as it would affect like a driver or rider in MotoGP's head. It was, it does that to their head versus your hand. And that I think makes so much more sense than, oh, I'm a fighter jet and I hit turbulence in an airplane. But I think it's just taking that like step back to being like, how many people really have been in a fighter jet guys? (laughs) You know, it's, I think if you can relate it with things that everybody experiences and something that's a little more common of an experience, it's a little more successful when it lands. That is so interesting. I have always obviously learned, like read the word like drag and turbulent and things like that. I did not think of it like that. Yeah. I see I'm only learning things. I love this. Oh my god. It's like a perfect example of like aerodynamic features and like if you stick your hand like down like this and the air comes right up over it that's like clean air the the turbulent air would be called dirty air in racing it's like one of the most basic and easiest ways that like I like to be like hey you think about aerodynamics like this have you ever done this because I guarantee you you have oh my god that's that is very interesting Mm -hmm. huh all right I'm gonna I'm gonna be thinking about this entire day now oh my gosh yeah (laughs) feel free to like after we're done too if you have any questions please I will gladly answer them this is gonna live rent free in my head this is not even joking. Uh, a community of females in motorsport includes a lot of people who don't just love F1, but other sports as mm-hmm. well. Some people who don't watch F1 at all. They're more like IndyCar, NASCAR, yeah. things like that. And in F1 right now, the fastest grid in the moment is not a car manufacturer. It's Red Bull, which is an energy drink. And to people who are not very familiar with the inner workings of Formula One, that always sounds insane. And someone like like my parents, for example. So this is so funny because basically my dad is always like, oh, like, because I started getting into F1 very recently and he's like, what is this world that you're in? And I always tell him like, oh, if you're interested in learning more, like watch Drive to Survive. Yeah. <laughs> because that is, I don't know how you will get into this. You need to get like a background of like, you know, who the driver are what the teams are how the sport works and i think it gives a really good introduction for someone like that so 
who's like watch it and then you know we can we can talk about it after that but the one of the first things that people who watch after survive always ask me is that how is an energy drink or how is a non car manufacturer like putting all these like cars together like how mm-hmm. do they do this so in simple terms for someone who doesn't watch f1 or so doesn't really understand the workings of this how would you explain that so i think it's important to understand that they didn't like they did kind of decide out of the blue that they wanted to be in racing um dieter madechitz the previous um head of red bull is very passionate about motorsports they didn't start from a total ground up operation they purchased the failed jaguar operation in formula 1 he swooped in and bought that and used that to build his team and so that's where they started was with this jaguar operation some of their facilities some of their staff and then proceeded to build up into the success that red bull is today and through that they've they obviously already had some facilities some engineering infrastructure so there's already some stuff there but then through Dermot Schitt's leadership and the investment that he made they were able to continue to advance and develop and bring in the best they brought in Adrian Newey who is arguably the greatest of all time of aerodynamicists in motorsports he has like something like 150 championship winning entries across pretty much every series in the globe um they brought in Christian Horner they bring brought in all of these tech leaders with the significant investment they were able to make and build this into the team that it is today and because they're not tied to a manufacturer like Mercedes like Ferrari um like Aston Martin it gave them a lot of freedom at least my perspective to really build this into what they wanted it to be they weren't stuck in the ways of how the manufacturer maybe wants it done with processes their layers of organization they really were kind of able to take this operation from Jaguar who wanted it gone and build it up into how they wanted it to function and ultimately have led to there are like six championships now four with Seb and two with Max so yeah six there something like six world championships now and six constructors and one of the most winningest their trophy cabinet's huge and so i think that's what leads them to be able to do what they're able to do in the world of motorsports is that they really kind of can make this organization into what they want and they're not kind of um I don't want to say like straddled because it's not the right word. They're not shackled to like an organization that in a traditional manufacturer would have and it also makes them very agile because everything's under one roof too because you hear about um teams where like Mercedes for example, powertrains are done at um Brackley or not Brackley. Mercedes powertrain is done in a different facility from Brackley which is the main technical center. And just even being miles apart can actually really affect your organizational agility or decision making, how quick things get done, how right things get done, the communication loops. And Red Bull was able to do it all on one campus. They're all in one building, they're all in one place. And even when they have Honda or Aston Martin, um Renault, some of their other uh manufacturers on board, there was always they're always like right there on campus. They had residents, so they made sure that they're feedback loop was always correct and was always agile and because everything's right there they built this really flexible and agile organization that is a technical powerhouse in motorsport because there's also the Red Bull Technologies arm that I don't think a lot of people talk about and that's their technology company that is responsible for actually the development of the Halo the IndyCar windscreen they build 
four or five standard components that the entire field uses in Formula One, like the brakes. And so they've been really able to develop themselves into a technical leader through that. I never really thought that the proximity between like the factories and the technical side and those departments can impact, I don't want to say success, because obviously Mercedes has also been very successful, but impact just like ways of working. Um, that's actually a really good point. I don't think I've actually heard that before, but that actually does make a lot of sense, just given how complex these these cars are, the innovation is, that I think each and everything can make like a significant difference. Yeah. So that's actually a really, really good point. Yeah, they do it. It's all under one roof. I, it's like if I'm the person designing something and I have a question, I can go two feet over and there's who I need sitting right there. I can go downstairs or I can go just like across the way and there's exactly who I need. And it, it really makes for good development and good working conditions. I won't say conditions. It's like not a great term to use, but you know what I mean? Where it's like, it it makes for good technical like work happening. And they see that a lot. There's studies out there too, even just in the corporate world, the proximity to your decision makers to who you directly work with has a direct linkage between like um, agility and success and things like that being like around the people you work with. Whereas like if I'm sitting a hundred miles away from people, it, it can actually directly affect the the product at the end of the day. Oh, that's very interesting. I'm trying to think of there's so many industries in the general corporate world that are like multinational corporations. Your manager might not be sitting in the same office as you. And mm-hmm. um, I think there is, there's, a, there's definitely something there. I know there's a lot of research, like you mentioned as well, there's a lot of studies on this. I think that's that's actually very, very interesting. And just given how in F1, like everything kind of moves together like a circus almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's actually a really, really interesting uh, way to um, put it. Like mm-hmm. you did. Yeah. And I, you made the Mercedes point. They've obviously been able to make it work and have found a system that works for them with the kind of separate operations coming together at the main factory. But I think it's how you handle that and how you manage that if there is that separation that really ties into a team success too absolutely so we're recording this right uh right at the nose of the monaco grand prix um and this is interesting because i did not know this but i saw on twitter the other day someone commented about uh helmet designs and someone said that drivers change their helmets based on the track it's not just like the design of the helmet i did not know that yeah, there's there's a lot of things they can do with their helmets and and that why they would change them them track to track. So for like a track like Monaco, what kind of changes would that bring from like a track like Monza, for example? Yeah. So one for the big one I'm going to start with is the visor. That's like the biggest thing that we'll see differences in. They'll use different color visors to help accentuate features around the track against the asphalt. So the color that they use at Monza might be different than what they use at Monaco because of what's going to make their their um, like reference points pop. It's usually rosy tinted. That's what's going to make um, things t- like um, be accentuated the best against asphalt, but there might be a different level of tint based on the pavement color, based on the surroundings, because I don't want to be distracted by like a yacht in the harbor, you know? Um, so that'll be a big one. We'll also see that change for weather. There'll be a rain visor that's treated with like Rain-X like you would do on your windshield essentially Um, and then an anti-fog on the inside. Um, So visor is a big one. And then the next one you'll see them change and it's always really hard to see is there's like these clear extra shielding pieces 
around the outside of the helmet. And some drivers will run more of them than others at different tracks. And this is for airflow around the helmet and to help keep the head down in the car. So if you ever actually look at one of Charles Leclerc's helmets, he's got like a flick up on the back of his that's built into all of his helmets because he likes to have a little more downforce here and he likes to not feel like um, his head could get pulled around. And so at a track versus Monza versus like Monaco, you'll see a lot more of those specific pieces that are geared towards lower drag or keeping air around the helmet in a smooth line um, while also keeping the head stable because drag is so critical at Monza with it being a power track. And you'll see probably just almost like flicks around the back is like what I'm used to observing at Monza. Whereas here in Monaco, you might see a little more shrouding around the face that while reducing drag um, keeps the head stable around the turns. And then you'll also see um, some drivers will change padding as well to accommodate what's going on or colored padding. Um, if they've noticed that maybe one spot's tighter than the other or it's rubbing, they'll change their padding too within the helmet if there's there's movement as well. But they'll, the big thing is all of these like clear pieces that you'll observe around the helmet. And you'll probably never look at a helmet the same way after this because there's usually like four dots up here and they look like holes some drivers will wear flick ups in that little they're like little nubs that are, that are like a little flick piece to help kick air um, other drivers will leave them open because it's actually an airflow enabler and actually flows air down to help keep them cool because in f1 versus like nascar and indycar they don't have the air hose that's attached to their helmet so it's a cooling feature that they'll do so i think one we know for sure who does it because he's talked about is pierre gasly he always has his open he's like i like them open but then other drivers will plug them with little arrow features to help either kick the air up off or maybe generate a little bit of like a vortex to help keep their head stable and keep the air around the head stable because if your head's getting pulled around it's not going to make for uh, seamless vision lines uh, around the track. And your eyes are one of the most important features to a driver. That is so interesting. <laughs> oh my God. I'm literally never going, like you said, I'm never going to look at a helmet the same way ever again. Yeah. I just feel like I learned so much. <laughs> so interesting. I never, honestly, when I asked this question, I thought it would just be the visor yeah. and maybe a couple more things. And it's just so much more mm-hmm. than that. And now that makes me think if I ever asked you a question about the car, that can just go on like so much more because that yeah. probably has a lot more impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, there's so much losses around the cockpit that the more you can enable in reducing that loss because the halo destroys the airflow around the car um, and the smooth air that comes up around it will kick out outwash, which makes it obviously harder to pass teams like outwash, but it makes the regulations kind of defeats their purpose sometimes depending on how that air is kicked out around the halo and then also as it comes in and around the driver and so trying to enable those losses around the driver and though they're seated in a seat you still have to consider that and that's they'll use the helmet as a way to do that along like the headrest so they're creating like one streamline up through the driver with the airflow while also making sure that the driver can capably operate the car because in situations like porpoising is this is a great one in situations like porpoising it's not a matter of can the driver handle the bumps which i mean it is it's just that they can't begin to capably operate the car and there's studies out of um, sports car racing that have struggled with porpoising that it just becomes a function of i can't safely operate a car as a driver with porpoising so we need to remedy it and so that's the same way with like airflow and um, turbulent air up through the car and, and around a driver same thing with moto gp too if 
that's I'm a big MotoGP fan. That's the same thing. They'll, they're trying to create clean air air curtains up over the riders. So the rider's not getting pulled around and able to safely operate too. But same same principle across multiple series. Yeah. Huh. That makes sense. I also think we sometimes forget that these drivers are sitting in these cars and these bikes for so long. Yeah. It's not like 5, 10, 15 minutes. They're sitting for a couple of hours. Yeah. So they need to be a little bit as comfortable as their position needs to be as optimum mm-hmm. as possible so that they can run for that, that that longevity of the race. Yeah, you'll see them add um, like extra padding or foam too. They'll do like behind the head, you'll see it. And then a lot of the times some drivers will like it on the side, like a certain side where they, they know they tend to pull a high G or where they, they feel like they're getting too much. They'll put like extra foam in and around the driver to help them too and help maintain um, or help maintain the head movement to be as minimal as possible. I was reading this morning, actually. It was about how I think Lewis Hamilton was complaining about how he wants his seat to change a little yeah. bit. But you can't really change that at the moment. And he'll have to wait for that next year. And it's so it sounds like, you know, if I compare it to like a regular car, it's like a car seat. Like, why can't you change that? But obviously, there's a lot more things that go in here. And that's, you know, that's why you can't change it. And like, I'm sure that also impacts him a little bit, considering he's sitting in a car that he may or may not be comfortable sitting in for a couple of hours every yep. other weekend. Yeah, that's yeah. one of those things. There's a couple layers there. There's like the actual seat insert could be what's uncomfortable for him. And they can make changes to that. They can reform a seat that's like a beaded foam that they can custom fit around him. And then they can they can like use like a Dremel, like genuinely like a Dremel that you probably have or somebody else has. They literally can Dremel out pieces to help make it more comfortable for him or just fit a new one. But it could also be his seating position, which is what a lot of that's tied to is how he's actually just physically seated in the car. And what he's talking about by not being able to do that next season is because that's in the monocoque, they'd have to go through a whole new homologation, which is the approval process and a crash test. And it's just like a road car where if I want to change, like if I'm going to change a car seat for like a child, I want obviously the one that's got the good crash rating that's going to fit their um, their physique and all of that. And so I you'll like watch like crash test videos and you want like the best possible one. But for the F1 drivers and the cars, they have to go back through this entire approval process with the FIA and under an era of cost cap, a whole new chassis and a whole new homologation. You might not have the time or money available to you to do that. Like what is that going to sacrifice if we need the homologation done again? And then that would also change the dynamics of the car where he sits in its behavior because that'll affect the center of gravity and the center of aerodynamic pressure around the car. So where really is it? Is it more forward? Is it rearward? Is it higher? Is it lower? And that'll just directly affect the behavior of the car and the package that they have. And so they have to try and balance comfort versus performance and make sure that obviously their driver is comfortable, but also that they're still extracting the best possible performance out of the car. And that's where that comes from is where I'd have to go back through this whole process to try and reapprove it. It's a it's a crash test. It's all of this stuff. It's it's very extensive to go through a new a new homologation. Oh my god, I feel like I should be taking notes or something. <gasps> like literally, I feel like I should be making notes. <laughs> oh my gosh. See, this is why I started my content because it's like I, I have these conversations and they get they weren't being recorded. And it's like that we should record that. And then like we're obviously recording, but it's like if like my I started because my friends have questions. Other people might have questions too, and and there's so much stuff in in motorsports tech and and the like F1 world that nobody's talking about or they're talking about in simplified terms. 
yeah absolutely i agree i agree like for example like i mentioned the fighter jet yeah. um example that that's what i've always heard but no one explained it to me like in simple terms like mm-hmm. you just did you know? yeah and yeah. that's like no this is not a dig at any broadcasters the broadcasters spend so much time in this world that they just think that everybody knows what they're talking about and like hey you might want to take a step back and I think that's something that like Sam does really well on F1 TV is he's breaking it down a little more easily to understand and being like pointing it out like hey this is this is this and this is why it looks like that or this is what it does but at the same time you can still tell he's very in this world and I'm like I I know what you're talking about but I know I'm gonna get a question about this like could could we go a little bit deeper yeah Sam is a great example. I also always watch his tech shows on yes. F1 TV. And F1 TV is one of the greatest things to come out of F1. Absolutely. They are doing such a good job with that. It's such a good job. I'm so impressed. I held out for a while and I'm glad that I didn't any longer than I did. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, before we wrap up, we're going to do our rapid fire round. Very exciting. So this is usually a place where we don't talk about racing. But I feel like with you, I would just I would just love to hear you talk about racing like like all the time. So feel free, just like be as creative as you want. Okay. Um, so are you ready? Yes. Let's go. All right. Question number one. Now, because I know you're a fellow podcaster, I'm gonna ask this question because sometimes I get asked this question and I do not know what to say. So I'm just gonna throw this at you now. But right. if you if you had one piece of advice for someone starting their own podcast, what would it be? I think just go for it. I think it's the point I just made where you're likely having this conversation already. Why not record it and put it out there because there's other people that would want to hear that conversation and likely have the similar um, thoughts to you or are thinking similarly to you and just hit record. I didn't realize how easy it was. It's a lot easier than you think. And so I think just hit record and put the conversation out there. And I think that you would be surprised at the feedback you would get and that it's already happening. And other people are like, oh my gosh, somebody else that thinks like me. And then you start to build your audience and your podcast and and all of that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I would second that. Yeah. Um, So you have been in the world of motorsport and this entire engineering side, tech side, for quite some time now. What has been your biggest pinch me moment? I have two. I'm going to say one work side and one like motorsport side. I think one was, I think, just getting to see like what I work on on the road every day. I can't talk a lot about my day job, but I work on the road car side and seeing like my car that I had a hand in on the road every day is still a ginormous pinch me moment. And then I would say on the racing side, um, I was invited to MotoGP earlier this year, like being able to do my tech content with a platform like that. And somebody who sought me out was a huge pinch me moment. And it, it kind of was like, okay, this is why I do it is like, it's series realizing they need people to talk about tech in a more simplified manner and, and letting creators come in too is a huge thing too. Oh my God, congratulations that you get yeah. to do that. Thank you. It was so fun. I It was my first MotoGP race in person. I've been a fan for a couple of years and I was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen and it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Oh my gosh. 
I definitely need to start watching MotoGP. Oh Everyone tells me that I would love it, and I think so I should start watching. I agree. I will second that. I got into it with their Drive to Survive, and like a couple years ago, mm-hmm. that's on Amazon, and I'm a total MotoGP girl, you know. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna do that. This yes. is what I'm gonna do this long weekend. I'm gonna binge this. <laughs> yes, it's so good. And then the Mark Mark has documentaries good too. It's like uh, another one they did. Yep. Oh, perfect. I'm gonna again. I'm gonna write this down. Yes. Um, okay. Last question. Very tech specific and very motorsport heavy, which is usually against the ethos of this rapid fire. But we're breaking rules really today, though. Breaking rules. Today. Rules are meant to be broken. If you could change, if you could change one technical regulation in formula one what would it be can i do a technical and a sporting regulation can i do one of each yeah okay technical regulation i would take drs and limit it and i would give a direct number of drs presses per race per driver so basically like the indycar pushed pass that's available where they only have so much of it a race I would only let there be so much DRS in a race so that it is a strategic element and we don't wind up with DRS trains so that a driver can choose to use it or not use it. And then they have a bank of it if they want it or they wind up using it all out and then you're out at that point. And so I think it would increase the effectiveness of DRS and prevent DRS trains because those just kill races. And so I would want to do that from a technical side sporting side like straight up sporting regulations you cause a red flag in quali or a yellow flag in quali you lose your fastest lap also an indy car rule that they do very well but i would like to do that from the sporting side in f1 technically i would like to see drs limited i like the drs thing because i agree drs trains just in on any track it can just make the entire race like so boring and i'm sure even for the race, drivers it's so frustrating to be behind another car for so long. i cannot imagine and I also kind of like what Formula E does. I don't think there should be a Formula 1 thing. But I think I really like what Formula E does where you have um, like a fan booster. Yeah. Based on how many boosts you get when you get another booster. Like driver of the day gets a boost in Formula 1. That would be so funny. I would love that. I think Checo would get it a lot. Just like um, Stoffel Vandoorne would get it all the time in Formula E. And then when they did away with it, he was like, he tweeted something that was really funny. That was like, oh, I'm not going to get this anymore because he was aware of how often he was winning the popular vote, which was really funny. So I, I like that, though, from like a fan engagement perspective. I think that. Yeah, would be agree. Really I think fun. it's I think it's interesting. It was a very good idea, especially for a series that is so new like Formula mm-hmm. E. I think it's a good way to engage fans. Yeah. I don't think F1 should do that because I don't think in F1 popularity should be like yeah. a thing you get any advantage because F1 is so polarizing. Like the the camps that you're in, they're so polarizing. Oh my gosh. So, and then there's also so much like F1 Twitter where they were, I can just imagine like the number of tweets that like, oh, he won because of the fans. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So Here I we go. <laughs> exactly oh, so we can't even get it uh, that would be fun though but, I think yeah. there's so many fun things I think that F1 could do and I would be so worried about the fan base like you're saying where it would just get more polarizing yeah. it's like have a little yeah. fun though come on I know I feel like every day when I open Twitter I'm not gonna lie it's entertaining sometimes oh. but sometimes I'm just like okay guys let's just like calm down a little bit because yeah. sometimes people like get so nasty over the yes. internet and I'm just like wow are you okay uh, yeah I like do you need help and then I'm like, like man I'm, I like open Twitter sometimes I'm like I'm tired and then I close Twitter 
know you need you need to engage if you want to use your brain to read twitter sometimes it's just gonna drain you out so yeah. quickly oh my gosh sometimes yeah. i'm just like nope not not today this is not a twitter day i know i know all right well thank you so so much molly for joining me today i'm so happy on from a personal perspective that i got to meet you and like yes. learn so much from you but also from females in more sport because again like i mentioned like people really really wanted to listen from you on the podcast and it's just been such a great conversation and I, i'm really like grateful that you took the time on a friday morning at 9 a.m to chat with me oh my gosh yes thank you for having me anytime i'm so excited we finally got to meet too it felt like it was a long time coming like it was gonna happen eventually like we'll, we'll get there and so i'm really glad that we had a chance to meet and talk this was so fun thank you for having me and have a great weekend too because it's it's friday before we close out you want to tell everybody where they can find you on socials where they can follow you maybe your podcasts yes so i think most of you may know me like you said i'm kind of the resident tech talker on uh, motorsports tiktok so you can find me at a bunch of red flags which is all one word but the l in flags is a one like in formula one and then i'm on twitter personally with molly m underscore o i'm pretty active over there too and then my two podcasts are tech heads f1 where you can listen to me talk tech with two other techie folks and we dive into kind of the really nitty-gritty on the tech side and then also um engines evs and espresso where we're at e cubed pod on twitter and then engines evs and espresso on instagram where we talk about coffee cars racing culture being women in stem um it's like kind of a super fun not necessarily all motorsports focused podcast so i'm kind of all over the place but feel free to find me and and check me out anywhere awesome thank you so so much thank you